0: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line.
1: Survival is the
0: rule of the day. Mm, my jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of country and We're out there. At the end talking.
1: of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. lost communication.
2: Getting yourself blown up does
1: some interesting things to do. A place like the Middle East a constant is constantly changing. we do there is it. constantly changing. Mm. And this, I think, was our own mind. He held me up with a broken whiskey bottle of and machine.
0: Today, Angus Horden spoke with Ivan Ingham, formerly of the Royal Navy and currently serving with the Royal Australian Navy. This is the story of a modern Navy captain. Enjoy.
1: I'm Angus Horden, and I'm joined today by Captain Ivan Ingham. Thanks for coming on the podcast today, Ivan. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Angus. Ivan, let's go right back to the beginning. Where were you born? Wow. Uh, okay, it's a long time. It feels like a long
2: time ago now. So I was born in a small uh, village in Lancashire called Rishton, near Blackburn, uh, industrial northwest of England, semi-rural. And when did you join the navy? October the 27th, 1980, as a 16 and a half year old. Okay, so what what inspired you to join
1: the navy? Now that's
2: a great question, isn't it? A distant cousin was returning to see uh, a family member who I'd never met before, and he was in the navy. He was a chef in the navy, and he was also a ship's photographer. And he'd been out in the Far East, which sounded really sort of exotic and adventurous. He'd been in Singapore and Hong Kong, and uh, I was visiting my grandparents, and I got to meet this this you know young man. And I thought he was very worldly and. You know, and uh, had a very exciting life, and I think that was the first seeds of that the Navy had something to offer me, and uh, uh, and I left home quite early. In fact, it was interesting because my uh, uh, my parents didn't think I was going to last. You know, that it was almost uh, you you, you go and join the Navy, and we'll, we'll we'll see whether you know we'll see whether you do it, and then if you do do it, we'll see how long you put up with it for. And the funny thing is, I've never looked back. It's been the best thing I ever did.
1: Tell us about the training in England in the
2: 80s. Again, it was a great time to join the Royal Navy in the 80s. It was uh, arguably the height of the Cold War. Uh, there was a lot of things going on in the Atlantic with the former Soviet Union and the Warsaw Bloc. The Royal Navy of the day was very relevant and uh, very, had a very strong sense of purpose and everybody in it was, was, was very focused about their training and the job that they did. It was very real world and, you know, there was all sorts of, I remember, operations going on at the time. So we had soldiers and sailors in Northern Ireland. Uh, we had ships in every part of the globe then, even though um, the former empire or British Commonwealth, as it was, you know, was, was, it was dwindling. The Navy and the UK of the 80s still had a, very much a global perspective and a global relevance. So with that came, uh, you know, a lot of responsibility, but also a lot of opportunities for travel and, and doing real, real things. And I hadn't been in the Navy, you know, your, your, your listeners will recall that shortly after I joined, of course, the Falklands um, uh, emerged in, during 1982. So I had been in the Navy barely two years then. And so, again, um, that was a very profound time to be in the military and be in the Royal Navy. Uh, and find yourself in, in that and the, the, f- the focus of the nation, as it were.
1: And w- were you involved in the Falklands?
2: So, the ship I... Uh, I was deployed to the Mediterranean doing this big annual exercise with nearly every ship in the Royal Navy at the time. I think there were 30-odd ships all in the Mediterranean doing this big exercise. When news of the Falklands started to emerge and uh, we were sent back to, to UK to get ready, uh, and, and the ship I was on, HMS Rill, subsequently sailed, but with the second or third task group. But on our way down, we were sent off to Gibraltar, uh, and we had some repairs and there was some security tasking for us. So we trained for to go and be involved in the Falklands conflict, but we actually arrived in the uh, region literally, I think, the day or the day before or the day after the sur- surrender was was signed. So. Uh, uh, I remember the ship's company were very motivated and we were all very excited at the prospect of you know being involved in that but then uh, of course as events uh, you know as as, as the, it was a very quick war it was 100 days but as, as the war progressed uh, I remember the navy and the nation being you know real with shock at the loss in those those early days you know the loss of Sheffield and then the other ships that were struck and four of them actually were lost in the end and 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 a relatively in terms of modern conflict uh, low numbers of loss of life but nevertheless many people were killed it could have been it could have been much much worse but still many people were killed and I remember um, we had such blind optimism in the service and what we were doing that I think all you know all my fellow sailors thought they were invincible so uh, when I look back now you know with the with some degree of sort of maturity I guess and a slightly different perspective I suspect we were in many ways quite lucky that we that the ship I was on, because it was quite, quite an elderly ship, and it probably, you know, while structurally that there were two other ships at the time that were the same class of ship that I was serving in, they, they were very badly damaged. And because they were quite old technology, they, they didn't suffer the same uh, catastrophic damage as some of the more modern ships, but they weren't really well armed to defend themselves. So they were in some ways they were quite vulnerable
1: and besides the Falklands were you involved in any other major deployments so again I
2: when I reflect back on my Royal Navy time I served for 20 years I you know I was uh, largely seagoing and largely operational um, so I did three deployments to the Falklands uh, two more after the original one um, for doing security deployments to to the South Atlantic, I did two deployments to um, up into the Adriatic during the Bosnia, Kosovo crisis, former Yugoslavia. Two deployments to the Middle East during the Iran-Iraq War, doing uh, uh, merchant um, ship escorting duties in and out of the Gulf so so quite a lot of operational yeah
1: there's a lot of real stuff happening it's not like we're just training in this and 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 it's for training sake there was real things happening
2: i mean that's even today um you know some members of the community would be forgiven for not realizing that you know just because you're not in a state of war that you're not involved in real world operations and promoting either national interests or promoting the security of a region or or promoting, you know, um, issues that are important to your own country. So it's just in many ways, you know, the, the, the modern Navy does a number of tasks leading up to conflict and war, but on the full spectrum from diplomacy to constabulary to security to intelligence, as, as, as well as practicing and rehearsing and proving and, and testing and training, there's real work going on every day to secure our borders and secure our interests overseas.
1: And dangerous work too.
2: Well, again, that's, that's something that, um, I mean, all the militaries um, are exposed to risk, but the maritime environment is, you know, is a very demanding environment to be operating in, even in peacetime. You know, there's an ever-present risk of grounding, collision. Naval platforms are complicated. They're, they're, you know, they're well-constructed and we've got great governance and rules and regulations. But notwithstanding that, you know, you've got um, propulsion systems, hydraulic systems, you're producing electricity, you're floating, you're exposed to the elements, high temperatures, rough seas, storms. You've got explosives, fuels, gases, all sorts of things on board. So you're operating in a, in a risky a risky environment. We're very good at risk managing and our people are professional and highly trained, but there's always an element of risk. And particularly, you know, when you're launching and recovering boats, uh, when you're operating in uh, busy shipping environments, uh, when you're operating helicopters, and when you're operating at st- extreme ranges from home and in, in hostile conditions, whether that be sea, wind you know humidity or, or, or off the full range that you're exposed to
1: the 1998 you go on exchange to australia
2: so yeah, i did again uh sort of always looking for excitement um a friend of mine i remember a few years previous seeing here or hearing about him going off to australia to do this exchange posting and that really captured my imagination and the timing worked out for me that i was able to uh asked to do something similar so in 98 I came out here with my wife and two young children and effectively did a job swap so somebody from the Australian Navy went to UK for two years I came here and uh, we went to to WA and lived there for two years and I I was a uh, an exchange officer on an Australian warship for two busy years at sea and that and we had a we had an amazing time you know uh, all of us m- me professionally and personally and my family, personally as well, to to live in this country and make new friends and and see new things. It was a great adventure.
1: You were based in Stirling.
2: So the ship was uh, HMAS Canberra, was a, a, a the FFG frigate, and uh, based at, at at Fleet Base West, HMAS Stirling, Garden Island.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful part of the world. I can uh, understand you escaping the cold and rudeness <laughs> yeah. of, of of England, of, of England, and coming across to Western Australia. It's a beautiful place. Ivan, can you share with us the big decision to leave the RN and join the RAN? Yeah, that that's that question actually is
2: uh, so, I guess, fundamental to me and to my family, both me professionally and to, you know, how it's transpired for my wife and, and our two children. I, I was really enjoying my work in the Royal Navy, and I had a very, you know, uh, what I thought was a very um, bright career ahead of me. And uh, we loved being in UK. We were very pleased to be going back after a very exciting and full two years in Australia but I guess when we went back there in 2000 it wasn't quite as I remembered it and I, I don't know whether the place had changed while we were away or whether my view on the world perhaps the latter perhaps our view of the world had changed but when we went back I remember thinking um, all the things that I'd taken for granted in the two years in Australia they lay in stark contrast to our family life when we got back so uh, you know I was looking at the opportunities for our children in terms of school and education and work uh, the security in in Europe the Royal Navy was we appeared to be in decline and it, although it's an organization I you know I admire greatly and I've, I'm very sentimental about it was definitely in decline and um I just found myself over a period of 12 months re-evaluating my life and my family life and opportunities and I was aware of a sort of sliding door moment, a very short period in which to, uh, you know, make this leap of faith uh, otherwise the door would have closed for lots of reasons, you know, both personally but also I think professionally. So uh, we, we came, we had, after about 12 months I found myself thinking more and more about the life that we'd had in Australia and the things that we missed. Uh, about our life in Australia with the things we did sort of every day and every week. And the things that, well, we were in Australia, we missed about UK were, were more infrequent. There were seasonal things. There were things we did rarely, you know. So it was it was just interesting. And I, I, I just had this, uh, eventually, this growing uh, realisation that um, there was a, a really remarkable opportunity for me and my family waiting for us. So that's, that's, uh, we, we came to this joint decision to come back, um, and it's the best thing we ever did.
1: Well, we're glad of that. <laughs> Thank you. Ivan, tell us about your deployment here.
2: So um, when we we, found, we we came back at the end of 2001, um, as a naval officer, I wanted to go back to sea straight away, really, just to sort of consolidate my position uh, as a professional seagoing warfare officer in the Australian Navy. Um, so we decided to go back to Western Australia where we'd lived. I thought that, in terms of migration, I thought that was lower risk for my family. They, we had friends still there. We knew where we were going to be living and, you know, there was a, we'd already applied for a school for the children. So we went back there and I volunteered to go back to sea um, and joined HMAS Anzac, which uh, at that time was, was a fairly new ship, I had a senior captain, had a busy program. And as luck would have it, it's all, often in the Navy, it's all about timing. I found my, myself in a great ship with a great team and a great ships program. We did some border security deployments first, but then we, we ended up going to the Gulf in 2002. And we were there for a few months leading up to what was the second Gulf War and the invasion of Iraq. Um, because we were there for the the months preceding that, we we found ourselves right right in the you know right at the front of that and in the thick of all that action as it as it transpired in in early 2003, which was uh, probably I mean I've I've been fortunate to have a number of career highlights for different reasons, but that was a very profound experience.
1: Can you tell us about being the bombardment control officer at that time?
2: There were three principal warfare officers um, and uh, one of my jobs was I was the, the uh, air warfare officer and, and the gunnery officer so uh, that was my expertise if you like and um, the ship HMS Anzac in leading up to then uh, leading up to the ward actually been involved in enforcing UN sanctions on Iraq and had been involved in doing maritime interception operations boarding operations effectively in support of UN sanctions, uh, so we did that for those months leading up. But when it became apparent that the ship was probably going to move from um, UN boardings to perhaps conflict, then we started to sort of prepare for our involvement in that. And uh, and my job was to work up the gunnery teams and and the gunnery crews so that you know when conflict started, if it did start, we we, we would be ready. HMS Anzac was involved with three other ships, three British ships, as it turned out, sort of ironically. And we were selected to provide naval fires on the first day of the invasion in support of the Allied invasion of the Al-Fawr Peninsula. So we were, you know, we were very, very close to the Iraqi mainland and at the
1: very forefront of all those forces moving into southern Iraq. Going back to the bombardment operations I understand that your team was so effective that you were appropriately recognized yeah I mean, I mean the ship did a number of things
2: during um, you know the, the ship and the boarding teams did, did some remarkable things in the months leading up to that invasion and then immediately before and during the invasion the ship did a number of things we, we were involved in the takedown of the oil platforms in the in the northern Arabian Gulf. Uh, we were there with the US Special Forces and then we were directly involved in providing naval gunfire support to cover the 3 Commando Brigade moving into the Al-4 Peninsula which was a whole ship effort and the ship was recognised subsequently with a meritorious unit citation which the ship was awarded and everybody on the ship was awarded that meritorious unit citation. The CO was awarded a a Distinguished Service Cross and a number of other officers were also uh, suitably uh, awarded Medallic recognition for their efforts, and um, and and I was awarded commendation for distinguished service for my contribution uh, in the gunnery, which is something that was you know was very I was very proud to receive, mm. and I thought it was particularly um, profound for me because being a recent changeover to Australia, I then found myself on a ship an Australian ship as an Australian officer, uh, being involved with a largely it was a coalition force, but it was largely British and working alongside british ships and provided gunfire for royal marines and british soldiers moving into iraq
1: so that was that was uh that was a strange strange experience really ivan after you leave the gulf you come back and you're back behind a desk but you're not well suited for the desk job it's interesting you say that isn't it uh i I didn't
2: mind doing uh doing desk work, I mean, we all have to, increase. I'm doing that increasingly now, actually, paperwork and desk work, it's, it's important stuff, but it's not ne- nearly as fun as being at sea. So you're quite right, and I was involved in some really good work, some capability project work, but unexpectedly I found myself being offered the opportunity to go back to sea, this time in a patrol boat in Cairns quite a sea change from my previous work at sea, and this time it was going to be in command. You know, all of my dreams came true because all good naval officers or uh, maritime warfare officers or seamen officers, warfare officers, should and mostly do aspire to sea command. So to be
1: uh, offered that
2: opportunity to be the captain of my own ship, I just thought it was the best,
1: and also to keep things in perspective, like you're on ANZAC, and what's the complement on board ANZAC? It's about 200 on on one of those frigates. And then you drop down to Townsville, which is a patrol boat. Yeah, and how many? That's correct. Yes, and how how many sailors are now under your control? So uh, uh, the uh, FFH
2: ANZAC class frigate is 118 metres long and has about 200 people, and and is about 4,000 tons. And the Townsville, which was a Fremantle-class patrol boat, is about, well, it's 42 metres long. I think it was about, from memory, about five or 600 tonnes and had around 26 to 28 people. So uh, many times uh, smaller in terms of magnitude. But uh, it's something I talk about to some of the officers now is that command is command. And whilst... You know, bigger ships are more complex and, in many ways, uh, more demanding because of the governance and the numbers of people issues. Ultimately, command is command, and um, you know your responsibility for the safety of the ship is uh, very costly. Uh, you know, even the smaller ships are very costly, and they're very important, and they carry the reputation of your your country and the lives of a number of individuals. So. The, we call it the burden of command. It still weighs heavily, even though it's a small
1: ship. And you know, I mean where that ship goes, Australia goes. A- a- and you are the nation's representative in that place and the buck stops with you that's so true angus
2: yeah so you know you're responsible and accountable to the families of those sailors of whom you command but you're also you know responsible and ac- accountable to the fleet commander and the chief of navy and you know the minister of defense prime minister and the people of australia for the good good name of the navy and the reputation of country and uh, the work that our minor war vessels do even now, you know, the, the Fremantles have gone, but we've got the Armadales and the Cape class now. The work that they do round the clock, 365 days a year, it's really, it's great work, but it's really demanding. I mean, they are, they're operating in small ships at extreme distances from Australia, round the clock. And, and uh, you know, it, when things can and do go wrong, that's a lot of responsibility for a young commanding officer to carry, because uh, help... Is, is a long way off, it, even medical help or engineering support or whatever, you know. As I said, the, the ships are highly capable and they're well-maintained, but there's always a risk when you're operating a long way from home or a long way from the coast.
1: Ivan, tell us some of the operations that Townsville did up north.
2: Uh, so, I mean, the operations we did then are quite similar to the operations that continue today. So essentially, you we're know, maintaining a, uh, a security and, and patrol presence across the entire span of northern Australia, all the way from, you know, far north Queensland, all the way around to WA. And we have ships making sure that our economic zone is protected and monitored. We work very closely with uh, uh, the, the, other, the Australian Border Force, with Coast Watch, with Customs, Immigration, uh, Federal Police. So it's
1: uh, it's work that goes on often unseen, but it's really important work. So your work as the skipper on board Townsville was obviously very rewarding, but the Navy has a habit of keeping their skippers busy on multiple ships. Tell us about your next ship. So um,
2: again, after my time in in Townsville, I was fortunate to have a full two years, and then uh, I was promoted shortly afterwards and did some more work in an office, and then again Before I was expecting, I found my back again at sea, but this time as a CO of another ANZAC class, so similar to the ship I'd served in previously, similar to ANZAC, this one was HMS Toowoomba, and also she was based over uh, at Fleet Base West in in Perth, and she was the second newest of the the ANZAC class. So we built ten of those, two went to New Zealand. Toowoomba was the penultimate, or ship number seven for us, so, Angus, um, shortly after I joined HMS Toowoomba in early 2009, um, there was talk about the mission for the Royal Australian Navy in the Gulf changing. Um, and even during our workup, it was still, it was still developing, there were still dis- discussions going on with government. And then during our preparation for the deployment, I found out that uh, a National Geographic documentary film crew would be joining me for the rest of the year. And so again, uh, by really by quirk of coincidence and timing, I just sensed that it was gonna be a special year and it was gonna be a a unique trip. And by the time we'd finished our work up, the mission had become much clearer. And uh, essentially what later transpired was that Toowoomba deployed to the Gulf and we were the first ship to take on a much broader mission. Previously, the ships had spent most of their time in the Northern Arabian Gulf working with forces deploying into Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, And whilst that work was still very much ongoing, the maritime contribution to operations in the Middle East took on a broader context. Uh, You may recall that in 2009, the piracy situation off the Gulf of Aden and off Somalia was becoming increasingly part of the news narrative. And Australia decided that we would also assist with doing counter piracy work, and the maritime security contribution broadened to counter-terrorism activities, doing security patrols in the North Arabian Sea and in the Gulf of Aden. So I took a, a specialist team, and we did a special workup, and um, and we got this new mission. So it was all it was all really quite exciting, but carrying a national uh, a National Geographic. Documentary crew on board your ship, 24/7 for six months on a deployment of that nature, which was reasonably sensitive and and quite risky, brought a, a, quite a challenging dynamic to command at sea. I would say that year. Can you share with us your experience with pirate operations? Uh, so I can talk a little bit about it. Over that period, 2008, 2009, 2010, acts of piracy became increasingly prevalent across that region but of course it is a big region we're talking hundreds and actually thousands of miles across the region Um, and the pirates who were largely Somalian and the country of Somalia uh, was imploding these uh, bands of people were going up onto the high seas they were capturing uh, a whole range of vessels, up to you know quite large ones, significant ones, holding the ships and their crews up for ransom to the various governments and owners, you know, and extorting uh, millions of millions of dollars. Uh, and some people were being killed. So it was a it was a very serious situation, but also it was having an effect on on the economy and uh, questioning the freedom of navigation of vessels to go through that region. So it was important work, but very challenging work because, You know, one moment, some of those vessels could be uh, just fishing or or moving from one country to another, from Yemen or from Somalia, and then the next minute, at a moment's notice, they could be involved in illegal or life-threatening activities. So it was a big area to patrol, and it took a huge amount of effort to basically secure that region. But as history now shows, over a period of time, uh, various countries contributing to that work, having ships, helicopters, uh, aircraft and Doing various security patrols, managed to uh, to basically overcome
1: uh, you know that the threat of piracy in that in that region. And not long after that, in 2011, your services were again noted. So yeah, again, I was very uh, lucky and privileged to be recognised. Um, after I
2: left Toowoomba, I found myself on the Australia Day honours list and received a member of the Order of Australia, which is a absolutely amazing. Um, honor and privilege but it was recognition uh, not just for you know the work that I was involved in but more importantly or equally as important that the work of the ship over that period of time so it was um, recognized my time in command of HMS Toowoomba but also recognized what the ship had done during 2009 uh, when we uh, assisted a merchant vessel that was being attacked by pirates uh, for the close cooperation of our work with the other coalition forces and the American fleet that were operating in the Arabian Sea at the time and and the good work that HMS Toowoomba had done. So Ivan, it must have been hard then to say goodbye to Toowoomba. So, you know, I had a very full two years in command of HMS Toowoomba. I'm fortunate in my career I've had a number of high points and that was that was one of, of many, but a special one nonetheless. Two years in command with a busy program, you can only do it for so long because you give a lot of yourself. All COs give a lot of themselves. It's a twenty-four seven job and you don't realise quite how heavily The burden of command weighs upon you until you've handed the responsibility of the ship and the people to somebody else and and you feel the the weight lift. So it was definitely mixed feelings when I left Toowoomba, as it had been, you know, when I left Townsville previously. Afterwards, I was a little bit relieved to have a little bit more time with my family and get back to a normal lifestyle again
1: for a while. So, Ivan, you leave Toowoomba and you're now posted abroad to America. Can you tell us what happens over at the American War College? Yeah, so again... uh, really
2: lucky in terms of timing I'm, I I was uh fortunate to be selected to attend the U.S. Navy War College at Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, It's a huge course, it's um, uh, six or seven hundred classmates but within the class itself there are about 50 international students. My class we had 47 but that's 47 officers from 47 different countries representing their country and I went you know representing Australia which is a great honor. The course has been running since shortly after the Second World War And as well as um, having a mid-career tertiary postgraduate learning experience the real purpose behind the course is to um, be involved in an international program where you get to know and learn from your international colleagues on the course Um, and it's a really personally enriching experience to spend 12 months amongst like-minded officers from different countries, you know, as far as Yemen, Africa, South America, Japan, uh, all over Europe, uh, just absolutely phenomenal experience. And and during that course, you make great friends. uh, And it's all about learning other people's perspectives, learning about other people's cultures and their, their, their militaries, their histories, their legacies, and building trust and cooperation and making a network of global fellow peer professionals. You then come back to Australia. What's your next posting? So, again, it's history repeating itself. I go back to Western Australia, to Fleet Base West. I join HMS Perth in command, a very special ship, but uh, she is a sister ship of the Anzac, the first ship I served in, and Toowoomba. Uh, she's newer than all of them because she was the last to be built, and she was also the first ship to be put through the ASMD upgrade program, which was basically... Um, a lot of money was spent on uh, midlife improving her weapon systems and her sensors. And the ships really, that, that class of ship with those upgrades is really at the leading edge now of uh, maritime warfare capability. Ivan, can you tell us about the operations that Perth undertook in the Gulf? Uh, so, my first year in command of Perth, we spent most of the time off Darwin. The Northern Territory and up in Southeast Asia doing exercises uh, and some security oper- maritime security operations and then in the final year we uh, were lucky enough to deploy back to the Middle East uh, an area that by now I'm reasonably familiar with although a place like the Middle East is constantly changing and the work we do there is constantly changing so going back you, you see new things and do new things but um, the deployment was quite similar in many ways to the previous one I'd had in Toowoomba. Uh, but this time we probably operated over a, a, a wider area and this time we weren't involved in counter-piracy operations because that activity is now is, is fairly quiet for the moment, fortunately. Uh, most of the work we did was maritime security and counter-terrorism operations.
1: What was your next posting?
2: At the end of last year, I found myself at the very end of the road my sea time is now well and truly finished. There is no opportunity for me to go back to sea in command of a ship. I'm too old, I'm too senior and, and I've had more than my fair share and it's time for younger, brighter people to be carrying that mantle. And I was thinking that I would perhaps go to Canberra and find myself in a policy job somewhere. But again, to my surprise, I found myself in uh, back in Sydney and In probably the closest job you can have if you're not at sea, uh, so for the last six months I've been captain sea training. I work from fleet headquarters. We have three teams. We've got one in in WA that looks after submarines. We've got another small team up in Darwin. who look after our minor war war vessels, our patrol boats. And then we've got a larger team here in Sydney in fleet-based east, and they're responsible for providing all the collective training and certification of our ships here in in Sydney um, and and our big ships. And essentially what what we do together, the three teams, is we certify the ships from a safety point of view after a long, prolonged maintenance period, and then we oversee and facilitate the sea training of those ships so that they are competent and ready to go out and do operations and go on specific missions overseas. So we kind of prepare them and we certify them. Uh, and it's a it's a terrifically rewarding job it's very busy as you can imagine um there's a lot of travel involved and going to sea but we go to sea for relatively shorter periods and we visit most of the ships frequently um and that uh, that allows me opportunities to share some of my experiences that i've had in my command and for my team of warrant officers and um mid-career officers who are all subject matter experts in their own right. I've got the good fortune of working with the Navy's best people they send the best people to Sea training group and it's really rewarding work because you see to bring a a ship's company together is really it's really quite it's very hard work for for us but more importantly for them because they're pulled in so many different directions and as people constantly posting to and from ships so you're, you're always having new people find themselves at a new rank or it's the first time they've been on that particular ship And whilst many of them know how to do their job individually, the trick of what we do is we build them into a team. So that they, you know, we build a team full of stars into a star team. And we focus on not them doing their job individually, but how the team operates as a fully fighting ship, whether that's firing guns or putting out fires or launching boats or doing warfare or even, you know, preparing meals and doing engineering. Every facet of the ship's life is covered and examined. And, uh, uh, and and we, the team now, are very focused on sort of coaching and mentoring in a, in a very positive way, which is probably a, a newer, more contemporary way of doing business than we've done in the past. So uh, it's a privilege to be involved in that and it's really fun and exciting work and it's rewarding to see the journey that those ships companies go on and, and the progress that they're making in a relatively short period of time. You know, I'm talking like two or three weeks we can make a real difference to a ship.
1: Ivan, not only have you had this incredible life with all this experience, but you've been quite the photographer as well. Your Instagram page, ivan.ingham, is full of amazing images of natural sea life, the Navy in action and all things maritime. Are there any other things that... We've talked about today that you'd like to discuss to our listeners who might be considering the navy as a real option for them. Yeah, Angus, thanks for for uh, highlighting my my Instagram page.
2: My my daughter got me onto Instagram just a few years ago when we were in Amer- uh, when we got back from America, and uh, it's funny, isn't it? Because ships actually are very photogenic, and our sailors are quite photogenic, and some of the stuff we we do lends itself. Great to you know a digital imagery and um, a lot of what we do goes on in faraway places unseen and so uh, I just decided to try and capture some some good images and and then put them on Instagram to see how much interest it would create and I, it's it's very infectious I really enjoy doing it uh, although I haven't done much of it recently I need to I need to get back on it again but I know that uh, the, the feedback I've had, both from my colleagues and other people, pe- people are really enjoying seeing some of those photographs. And it's a good, good thing for me to look back on as well. Uh, so I'm glad that you've seen them and I'm glad that you like them. So Ivan, can you tell us what your next posting will be? I can, Angus. So uh, literally only a couple of months ago, I found out that I'd been uh, selected for promotion um, and the promotion is connected to the next job I'm going to do, which is uh, I'm going to be Commodore Warfare, which I start in nearly a, just under a month's time. Uh, and that means that I'm, I'm not going to be at sea anymore. I really will, won't will be going to sea um, and definitely more time in the office and doing uh, a lot more policy. But it's really Important work, and and it will suit me well given my background of my seagoing experience, and given the work I've just been involved in, uh, I should be really well placed to 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 take on that that work. Uh, And the promotion is a really remarkable opportunity, that extra responsibility, but the opportunity to, to make a difference and to contribute at a higher level to the future of Navy and our warfighting effectiveness, which is going to be really important in the years to come in this region.
1: Ivan, listening to you, it's it's been an amazing story. What's exciting is that it's not over, it's still going and going strongly. Can you share with our listeners really what the Navy has done for you? And we'll blend the R- Royal Navy into the Royal Australian Navy here. And, you know, what Navy life has done for you and your family and and what sort of life it could be to a young person who might be thinking of starting a career today? Yeah, that's a great question, Angus. I've had a remarkable
2: life and professional life uh, based on my naval service. There's two chapters there. The first one, you know, was the Royal Navy chapter where I guess I went from boy to man. And then the second chapter, which really has seen my professional progression beyond my wildest dreams. The two navies are very similar, but the consistent themes between both of parts of my career are one of great variety and great opportunity with wide travel. You know, being challenged, accepting responsibility, being able to manage risk. I've applied myself well and I've worked hard, but no different from all my colleagues. And the, the message is that the Navy offers a really rich and rewarding career path where really you can achieve anything you set out to achieve. Because um, the Navy invests in its people. We get great training. Uh, we, get, we get looked after. Um, it's a fantastic institution. When I reflect on that question and think about it, even even my own family serves as a good example. My son decided he was going to join the navy uh, without any encouragement from me. Actually, I. I other ideas uh, planned for him, but uh, he decided that he was going to join the Navy. And he did that in 2000, I think it was 2005 or 2006. He's been in just over 10 years. And he's had a, a wonderful career. He hasn't always seen some of the hardship and sacrifice. He's seen all the family reunions, and he's seen the friends, and he's seen a lot of the good times without some of the difficult times but even through that view he's absolutely flourishing in the navy and he's uh, he went through creswell uh, he then went to adfa and, and got a degree He's served in a range of platforms he's been on three or four operational deployments him, himself he's grown both in stature uh, you know uh, and as a young man i'm enormously proud of him and his achievements and now he's serving in uh, in the young endeavor in the sail in the sail training ship and he's having his own adventure, which is quite different from mine, you know. So he serves as a as a as a great example of a young man uh, following a different path from my own. But in some ways, it's a, it's a parallel path, chasing his own ambition and and having a marvelous career uh, and marvelous range of opportunities that are open to him. The other thing I think that that I'd like to just Probably finish up on is um, you know a career in the navy and the navy's importance to Australia have never been more apparent. I think in this day and age we take our uh, we take our place in the world and our security and our prosperity. I think we take that for granted and that's understandable. But uh, we shouldn't forget that the particularly Australia as a maritime nation is absolutely dependent upon uh, you know freedoms of navigation our ability to trade um, and the great prosperity and freedom that we enjoy here in Australia comes from the freedom of the seas. That's, that's how this country in many ways uh, has come forward over the last 200 years was reliant upon the sea and I think we forget that. So I'm sensing that both in academia, uh, in the press, national politics, I'm sen- sensing an, an awakening to that. Uh, And with that, of course, is the relevance of the Royal Australian Navy to our country and the future of our country. And uh, it's a great time to be in the Royal Australian Navy. Um, We're we're relatively small in terms of numbers, but we're a very ambitious organisation and we we recruit great people. We are investing in some of the finest ships that are available and we have some of the most ambitious um, and uh, exciting programmes. And uh, the Royal Australian Navy is at the forefront of You know, it's a a forefront Navy in the world, so there's no better time to join.
1: Ivan, thank you for sharing your wonderful story. It's been a great Navy story and certainly been a great life for you and for our nation. Thank you very much for your service. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Angus.
0: That was Angus Horden speaking with Ivan Ingham. Our thanks go to Defence Media for organising the interview. If you enjoyed this conversation with Ivan... Please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps other people discover the podcast. And also make sure you're subscribed to the podcast to get all new content. Join in the conversation on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L-Pod. And check out our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.